Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. Joining me on the show today is Nick James and Michael Roper, the directors of Architecture Architecture, a nine-person Melbourne-based practice working on a mix of residential, education, and social housing projects. In this episode, Nick, Michael, and I discussed how the studio has transitioned from the early days of word-of-mouth inquiries, where building trust and confidence was key, to attracting clients through their built work and how that's allowed them to really concentrate their messaging on themes of physical and psychological comfort. Michael and Nick also reflected on how a broader sense of uncertainty in society since the GFC may be leading people to seek out architecture like theirs that evokes feelings of warmth, safety and comfort, while also bringing a bit of joy and experimentation through colour and form. We discussed the steps Michael and Nick took to move from private residential to education and social housing, from establishing careful systems and processes, building relationships, studying the market leaders and developing new ideas through teaching design studios, all before actually pitching for a project. And finally, we spoke about the importance of timesheets and carefully planned systems and processes running the studio and how it's helped Michael and Nick to better understand the finances and resourcing around their projects, avoid micromanaging the team, and give their staff greater autonomy and enjoyment by streamlining their project admin. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick James and Michael Roper from Architecture Architecture. Nick and Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. As always, let's start off with a little bit of a background on architecture. Architecture, if one of you wants to take it away, it's always funny doing these three-person ones because we never know like who's really going to start first. So whichever one of you would usually give the intro of like welcome to the practice, can you give us um, just a little bit of an overview of like kind of the history of the studio and just just an idea of like what sort of work you guys do and what you're, what you're kind of working on these days? Yeah, Nick's giving me the look. Um, <laughs> I mean, Nick and I have known each other, you know, since we were 18, you know, started architecture school together. Um, we lived together through those student years, uh, you know, built a little studio space for ourselves and a few other Archie students back in the day. Even did a little bit of travel together for a moment there and really kind of organically uh, became apparent to us that we'd enjoy working together in business. And so that's where we landed. Um, we started the business 11 years ago, started out like a lot of uh, small practices um, in the residential sector. That was, yeah, like I said, 11 years ago. We've been largely doing residential work um, since then up until about 2019 when we started getting into government school work, which probably makes up about you know, 30, 40% of our work now yeah cool when the studio first started i mean the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago in kind of the lead up to this episode we were talking i got i got the impression that you guys like to think about what you're doing before you do it you don't just sort of like launch into things you're quite methodical in your approach to stuff so i wonder about that sort of uh focus on the residential in the beginning um why residential in particular? Was that just a, you know, it's sort of the typical pathway for a lot of studios, but was that because it was sort of accessible for you guys or was it just an area that, you know, you really wanted to concentrate on as well? 
Uh, I'd say there's a bit of both, really. Um, there's there's ge- generally more opportunity um, in the residential sector, I think, particularly for young upstarts um, to kind of get their hand. You know, you, it can be as small as a as a as a laundry fit out, or you know, as large as a new house. So there's a lot of diversity in there. So there's a lot of opportunities for different size practices and and practices at different stages of the their career to, to sort of start out in and and a lot of that that area when you're starting it's it's sort of word of mouth amongst your friends family colleagues really too so um it's it's a bit more accessible um from that perspective and and then we just have a really great interest in in residential work we still love it today as much as we did when we started and you know, being kind of 11 years down the track and a few awards behind us, the, the opportunities kept coming our way and with kind of, you know, interesting sites, different, you know, larger budgets, different types of briefs. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's it's just continually evolving. I think also it's, in, I mean, it's interesting. I think um, it's a particularly Australian thing to start a practice with residential work. You know, if you if you look to Europe, you start a practice off the back of competitions. Mm. If you're in New York, you maybe start a practice off the back of, you know, fit outs. Um, in Australia, the aspiration, you know, for the average family unit is to, you know, have your quarter acre block, claim your space, um, build a house or renovate a house. And that's still very much, you know, stitched into into the Australian um, psyche and, and therefore... You know, there's a, a property ownership is obviously, you know, a, a massive part of Australian culture, land ownership. And so it, there's, a, there's a lot of scope for an architecture practice to start there and to establish its credentials there. Yeah. And I think a lot of the conversations we have on the podcast sort of start there. You know, we start with the background and we're talking about, yeah, we started off doing our residential stuff for friends and family and things like that. And then we always kind of have the same conversation, which is like, okay, that's great. But the challenge that comes up in that area at the beginning is that people are coming to you because you're, you know, you know them, you know their cousin, you know, they're like, it's that sort of thing. And it's like, when does the real aspirational, real creative um, sort of, uh, you know, when, do, when does that work? Like how do you start to have that relationship with the clients at the beginning when they're not coming to you because they've kind of seen your portfolio or they've seen you in a magazine or something like that? And I'm always fascinated to hear the different answers that or different approaches that guests have taken at that early stage. So for you guys, like, you know, when you're when you're meeting, you know, your, your sister's, uh, you know, accountant and they're doing a little renovation or something like that, like how do you kind of go, how do you warm that conversation towards towards architecture or what's what's your approach yeah there's definitely an element of trust on on their behalf when when you know you're starting out but it, it's yeah. not like we're starting from scratch we had you know a good 10 years behind us prior to starting our own practice i think you know as we do today it's it was just about honest transparent communication with the clients you know, you present your designs, you explain the designs, you, you take them through the, the process, you listen to the feedback, you, you respond positively to their feedback and, you know, you gain trust kind of through that process and, and through that time. And, you know, those projects were 18 months to 24 months long. So there's a long time to, to kind of establish that trust um, through that process. And for us, you know, whilst those budgets were small or the, the projects themselves were small, 
we set up, you know, Mike and I talked from day one, like one, your, your work is self-perpetuating. So you, you give it your all, you give everything to those projects because, you know, your next set of projects is going to have to leverage off those first few projects. And, and whilst the budgets are small, there's usually an opportunity for one or two like real moments um, within those projects. And, you know, you target those little areas as well. So, you know, there's a little bit of magic in, in kind of even those small projects as well. So every project was super important and we, and we treat it as such. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can design a, a front gate with joy, right? Mm. So it's not really a question of scale. It's, it's really a, a question of your application and, and, and the interest that you find in it yourself. And did you find that there was possibilities to kind of leverage off those projects where maybe it was more like what you would describe as moments of something interesting? Like were those projects still kind of usable and were you able to kind of like develop this feedback loop or this perpetuating thing that could come from the back of those? Or was it just like to be able to have something to show to that next client that came in that you were able to then show them that stuff and have a conversation about the ideas and all of that sort of stuff? I think... Like to the trust winning kind of process that Nick was talking about, there's the there's the winning the trust of the of the actual clients that you're working with, and then there's winning the trust of kind of the broader potential client base that's out there in general. And so, you are starting with those small projects and and gradually building into larger. Um, you are using whatever you've got, so whatever you've built, you you do leverage to show them that you are capable and you will get things done. Um, but really, like thinking back, and correct me if I'm mistaken, Nick, but I think a lot of our early projects were more word of mouth. And so we weren't necessarily trading off the back of the, of the high quality of our design work. We were really trading off the back of clients being happy with our level of service. So you can trust these guys, they will, they will deliver on the project, they'll take you through it, um, they're safe hands. Um, and yeah, those early projects were really much more about word of mouth. Whereas today, very different landscape. Today we're, you know, we're winning work you know, more off the back of, um, of, of yeah, design credentials, I suppose. So even at that stage though, where there was this kind of this transition that was going to happen over time as you were moving from that sort of trust and competency and selling what we do and that we're good guys and we can kind of handle this project into the more design credential stuff, like that kind of changes the sort of the shape and appearance and form of the practice and the message to a certain degree. And as you said, like what you're kind of trading on kind of changes there. Um, But were you guys sort of thinking ahead and, sort of seeing where that transition would kind of happen or sort of thinking about how to emphasize those things that you were trading on in the earlier days? Like were you thinking from the perspective of we're in word of mouth phase right now, so we need to be more about these sorts of things. But then later on we're going to be in design credential phase, so we need to start like anticipating that direction we're going to go. Like what what were your sort of – what was going through your mind at the time? I don't know if we were super conscious of the phase change we were going to go through, but – I write a lot of the um, the project descriptions that go on our website and into our folio and stuff. And Nick will no doubt remember that there kind of came a point where did transition from 
describing projects in such a way as to establish kind of our bona fides in terms of, you know, being able to deliver something that would perform thermally, stand up, be oriented correctly, um, deliver on all the functional needs of a house. You know, the, the texts were very much, we can do this work. Um, and at some point, we realised that the work was starting to speak for itself. We didn't necessarily need to do that anymore. We were clearly delivering on the fundamentals. And I started just having more fun with those texts. Um, and I think probably more unconsciously that transition had started to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I see that too when I'm working with practices. They they, they all tend to go through these these phases of copywriting and messaging where you know, like they might be, they might be in the listening and collaborating phase. I see that phase quite often. It's like, we're all about, you know, everything being kind of a response to our clients and working with you and your brief and everything. That's like a very clear cut journey point that I see a lot of studios get to, but then you kind of move into this more sort of like, um, experiential kind of mode. I feel like that's kind of like the, the final destination. It feels like it's like, what is this architecture like to experience? Or maybe like these, just speaking more abstractly about kind of concept or I don't know, like, what do you think, what stage are you guys at in terms of language? Like, have you reached the final language destination on the, <laughs> the final station yeah. on the train line or what? I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, you, you're ever evolving. And again, like going back, I'm not sure it's like a subconscious, like I'm not sure it's a yeah. really conscious thing. It's more, maybe more of a subconscious thing. But I think what you get over time though is you get you get a confidence. So... 11 years in, we're confident with the work we're doing right now. We're very confident in that work. And I think the people that come to us are very confident that we can do that work and, and do it really well. I think that's, that's well established. So, um, there's that, you know, the conversations with clients now, often the ideas we put forward early on are the ideas that are, are carried right through to the end. So I think there's just that general confidence both ways that when you're presenting things, you know, they, people feel like we, we, we understand we know what we're doing. But Mike and I talk, it's not resting on those laurels either though. So you don't want to plateau in what you're doing. The world changes, you know, socially, environmentally, financially, everything changes. So you, you've got to adapt as you go and you've got to keep it interesting but amongst ourselves and, and our staff and our clients. Like, I think looking at our work, there's, there's maybe some consistencies between it, but, it, you know, not every project I don't think looks the same either. And we're always responding to kind of brief context, clients, et cetera, and that's, that's a really important thing to us too, that it, nothing becomes a bit too cookie-cutter or stale. Yeah. When, when we spoke last time, you guys were saying that you had this real focus on kind of human and psychological comfort was something that came up in our conversation. And there's been this sort of evolution and as all sort of practices do in terms of what we talk about and what we sort of trade on. But has how long has that been a kind of a thread that has been coming up as a bit of a theme either in like the work or the project descriptions or the conversations with clients? Like is that is that one, that's a pretty long-term one or something that you guys have been thinking about recently? I think... It's It's been there from the beginning, I think, for both mm. Nick and I. I think it's actually just fundamentally who we are. I think we've both come into architecture for our interest in people and our interest in the comfort of people, um, you know, the physical and psychological comfort that we can, that we can provide through well-designed architecture. I think that's probably just written into who Nick and I are as, as people and 
was going to be there regardless. It feels, it's not really something Nick and I have talked about a lot, but something I've reflected on from time to time. It feels to me like this is who we were probably always going to be. And we have fallen into sync with probably a moment in time where the world is perhaps more interested in these ideas than they were, say, uh, in the 80s, 90s, early 1000s. And in that sense, we're probably lucky. We're, we're interested in and talking a language which seems to resonate with where the world's at at the moment. Which aspect of it do you think is really resonating? Just like the whole the whole thing or like certain parts of it, like in terms of how you connect it to kind of the era or sort of the the spirit of the times, which which part do you think is really connecting? If you look at the at the work that was happening around the world and locally kind of in the early thousands, it was very kind of heroic object-based. You know, it was very much about cutting a striking profile, you know, with your building and the setting sun. And there seemed to be a real, there was a real turning point come the GFC in turning attention towards um, human welfare. It feels like that's carried on and, I think you do see shifts in architecture as in any other area of fashion. You see, you see global trends um, in design move with you know, other global concerns. So during periods of high uncertainty, financial uncertainty, um, insecurity, we often see a return to more earthy materials you also see in food fashions, for example, like a return to real comfort foods, like, you know, bur- burgers and Mexican food and really kind of warm, you know, filling foods. That's possibly a long to be drawing, but I think architecture has moved similarly and post-GFC, there was that, there was that um, bending towards more of a humanist interest in architecture and it just happened to be the case that, you know, a couple of years later we would have started practice. And like I said, I think that's been probably fortuitous to us because it's the language we intuitively speak. It's interesting how often people mention the GFC on the podcast, like what an impact it had in terms mm. of radically changed sort of architecture in a way and, and culture. And and maybe that's like kind of the era where still we're still in that era, right? Like it hasn't changed maybe even with, with COVID and even with they probably like recessions and things going on at the moment I suppose Mm. we're still probably in that same era or do you think like I know this is a really really big kind of question to throw at you but do you think maybe do you sense any sort of shift at the moment or you guys like having this sort of empathy sense of like what 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 are people kind of going for like (laughs) what what's the what's wavelength is the world on at the moment um are you sort of sensing like a little bit of a shift in yourself in terms of your work and the way you communicate it like oh, maybe, maybe there's a slight adjustment to be made at this point or is, are you picking up any sort of spidey sense of that right now? I mean, I mean genuinely, when you, when you map the periods of global economic optimism and uncertainty, you, you see these kind of waves in conservatism versus design, mm. brashness. <laughs> and so, you know, you look at the 1950s post-war, you're starting to get all of these, all this kind of colour coming into, often into the, the home through home appliance is kind of the, the typical image we see. You look at the 1970s, you know, oil crisis, um, global uncertainty, 
And you're seeing a lot of the architectural moves that, are, that have currency today. So we're almost seeing the echo of that history. Um, you look to the 1980s, a period of, um, you know, bold kind of um, opening up of global markets, um, economic optimism, and you see that come through in the in purely in the in the in the colour and shape of architecture. And then you 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 know you fast forward again to a period like now and and like the 70s where we're not feeling so sure. We're not feeling so sure about what's happening geopolitically, environmentally, economically. And so we're looking for places where we can snuggle in and feel um, comforted, where we can feel connected to our families and to our communities. So to answer your question in terms of where we're heading next, it's hard to see us kind of in the, looking at the macro picture, moving out of, the, of this period of uncertainty anytime rapidly. But I think what we do see is within this context, there seems to be an appetite nevertheless for bringing colour and bringing experimentation back into that mix so that while maybe there's a subconscious acknowledgement that yes this is where we are we're in this period where we want to feel safe and connected and protected maybe we've been here for a little while now you know maybe we've been here for 15 years now um, and maybe we feel like if this is where we are um, let's make ourselves let's make it interesting for ourselves as well and I think I think that's what we can see happening in architecture at the moment but you know this is one guy's take. It's a good take. It's an interesting take. Nick, do you have a take? <laughs> like I think we want joy. So, you know, we want comfort, but we also want a bit of joy. So there's you turn on the news and it's pretty miserable most nights at the moment. So I think if if a building can can bring a bit of joy or a bit of delight while still providing that kind of comfort, um, enables like, you know, rich kind of social engagement whether that's within a fa in a family home or in a in a public library or in a school or in a swimming pool or something like that, I think, um, yeah, like those, you know, we're right into all those kind of natural materials and those sorts of things. But like combining them with that colour or those those little details that create real interest or delight in a building, I think that's it's it's kind of emerging of those two things. I feel just one final thing about that conversation and having that with clients. I mean, within your kind of residential side, before we look at like other areas, do you find that you've got maybe a couple of kind of clear typical segments or standard sort of groups of clients within your residential client base that are maybe at similar stages of life or, or whatever? I mean, I'm just interested if you find that you generally kind of resonating with one kind of core group or one sort of stage of life or whether there's like a couple of different areas that you kind of get to. Um, and then also how they sort of relate to that message. Maybe if there is some generational difference or whatever, I am interested in how maybe that that conversation sort of varies with different kind of types of client. Our typical client, I'd say families, young families are probably our main client. And then there's, well, we have had uh, a number of couples as well at different stages of their lives. But yeah, I think families is definitely the predominant one um, and, and young, typically young families or with young children or early teenage children. But I, I guess that's probably where a lot of people are, are looking to either upgrade their house or 
or build a new home too, moving into those phases of their lives. I, I feel like every client is so different though and, and you've, you've got to get to know them to then understand um, what realms or what areas you might move into in terms of um, what we already do or are we going to push something else or mm. push something different here. So I think we, you know, feel our way with a client initially and, and you know, really get to know them, understand what they're looking for. Um, some clients just, some clients do want to experiment and they're like open and upfront about that or they want something something interesting or something new. Um, other clients you kind of learn along the way that, you know, they're looking for, don't know safe, but they're, they're looking for something architectural but maybe not like radical. So, um, so your clients maybe separate more sort of psychologically in terms of they're a little bit more they're a little bit more risk taking or they're kind of keen to experiment. They want to do something different and try something new, and it's a little bit unexpected. It's a little bit and they're not sure exactly what they're going to get. But then you have this other group of clients that are maybe a bit bit safer, a bit more cautious, a bit more conservative, and that's fine too. But they're just they're, there's a different sort of mental approach there in terms of the process. Yeah, there is, and 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 we're very careful to respond to that. I think mm. it is really important to to listen to to your clients and, and what they're after and work with that. So um, we, we take great pride in that, and we talk about that amongst ourselves, and we talk about it honestly with our clients too that um, that that we are we are there to work with them, and we are there to provide, but we are there to provide guidance along the way. So. Um, you know, we're, we're trained in architecture, we're trained in designing buildings. So we will always put what we think is the best outcome on the table and, and, you know, respond to that feedback as well. In that sense, we kind of see ourselves in a way like, or a client's advocate, you you know, in in the same way that you might seek legal representation, (laughs) you know, we're like design representation in a way, our job is to sit down and understand the client's circumstances to understand who they are and it's again really I think in the nature of Nick and I to be pretty curious about who people are and how they live and you know what excites them and what they do with their lives in and outside of the home and what bearing that has on the nature of the home we're designing we really enjoy that whole process and bringing that to bear on a design outcome is is exciting to us. And I mean, it's really exciting when a client comes to you with something that you would never think to do yourself. You know, if, if a client hypothetically were to say, I just want everything pink <laughs> and we may not necessarily want to do that or I want everything triangles. I mean, no one ever comes and says, I want everything pink and triangles, but you get the idea. Someone comes forward with something that you would just never think to explore yourself. And that's just an exciting opportunity for us to go somewhere we wouldn't normally go. Yeah, we, we don't resist that, do we? I mean, yeah, we, we absolutely embrace that because it's, a, you know, it's a kind of a fun challenge to, to see what you can do and you, we're testing ourselves. Uh, every client's weird, like every that. person is weird. So, you know, we want to we find out. In a way, we kind of go looking for those things that, that, that make a client different from the, from the next and to give them that thing which so which will specifically speak to who they are in a way they then feel seen through the design that we're offering them um, and in the, and they find identification 
you know, through that. Um, and we, on the other hand, get to explore something which we never otherwise would. And we kind of, we really deeply feel that every client is different and every site is different. And this client has never come together with that site ever before and probably never will. If you look deeply enough into the nature of this client and the nature of this site and respond to it, to, it, to the true nature of, 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 the, of the site and client, you will arrive at something which is entirely unique. You don't, we don't need to be importing um, you know, references to Russian constructivist cinema or, or anything like that to, to, make the, to make the architecture interesting. The interest is all there in the, nat- in the nature of the um, parameters that we're working with. Yeah, interesting. So it's almost like you know a, a combination of numbers in a password having thousands of unique possibilities. There's like you know we these few things together, and then if we, if we but we, if we really look at those and really engage those and represent those in the project, then that's where that sort of that possibility of that uniqueness kind of comes from. That's great. Um, that's a good way to think about, or a good sort of a good image, I suppose, to kind of keep in mind because. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm in a job where I only have to create marketing strategies and they don't have to be unique and no one's going to be looking at them in a magazine. So I'm not under this same pressure that you guys sort of face here. But but I think like what it, maybe that's the wrong way to describe it. It's not a pressure towards originality because I know you guys are not doing this to perform to, you know, your peers, et cetera. This is, this is about, you know, working with your clients and, and kind of advocating for them and delivering for them. But but I suppose this idea of each project doing something interesting is still really important, right? Like we don't want to, as you guys said, you don't want to end up in that plateau and just be like, oh, cool, we're just kind of churning it out, right? We want every project to do something different, to, to be challenging, and sometimes clients are specifically looking for that. So um, I guess just I think it'd be interesting, like maybe Mick, just in terms of that sense of why that uniqueness matters or why that individuality for each project matters like it's probably more of a question about why architects do what we do in a way or what what we are but i mean to you like why do you why 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 do you feel that that's important or add something to the mix uh well well other than it being i think important for the for for your client i like i love my job so i want to keep it as interesting as possible for as long as possible you know our job is very um stimulating and uh we want to keep you know, I want to keep that going. I won't speak on behalf of mine, but I want to keep that going <laughs> for as long as possible. I think so. I think it's it's just like keeping the love there in, in the job that we do, engaging with the people around us who work with us, or um, you know, the clients we're with. I think they, you know, your clients want to see that you are still interested in yeah in doing their their job for for them. Um, you know, otherwise I might as well just go and do something easier. <laughs> it's really true, actually. And I, I've done interviews with my clients' clients. So, like, actually speaking to homeowners is kind of part of my process. And it, it, the number of times that they've said that they, you know, they met with multiple architects, but one practice in particular just was so passionate about what they do. And that was the ultimate thing that just made them go like, yeah, that's the practice I want to work with. Um and I think it really does. It's something that comes up on the podcast as well. This this idea of kind of trying to trying to stay passionate and engaged and, and sort of entertained by the process as a, yeah. as an architect, not getting burnt out on it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. It's well, like what we do is very cool. Like yeah. we get to design houses, and you know, a builder will build them for us. I mean, yeah. it's pretty sick. That, it's pretty cool. It's yeah, exciting. Mike's probably got something to say. Yeah. 
<laughs> I just think there's something about also when a client comes to you and says, you know, I want a four bedroom house, living areas, and we know that brief. And 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 again, that could be something which could become repetitive. But again, it's about getting down into the detail of exactly who these people are. That means that you want to find that thing you haven't done before that makes it theirs. Um, and that's part of that drive to innovate and find new ways of thinking about the way you sit in a lounge or communicate across the house or move out into the backyard, all of these ordinary things that we do. But every family kind of has their own nuance or take on the way they think about they, the way they do those things. Um, and it's exciting and interesting for us to be responding to that. Yeah, I love it. I want to move on to a different kind of topic here, which is just talking a little bit about, we've talked about residential basically up until this point, but recently you guys have been moving, well, have moved more into education, as you said, doing schools, about 30% of the business. And I think you're kind of, you know, you're not done there in that category. I think there's also talked to me before about moving into other areas as well. But I'm really interested in being the kind of, um, kind of quite thoughtful, methodical approach to exploring other sectors. Cause obviously the way that you guys approach design is not like, we're not, we're not residential only. That's not our mindset. It's like, whether it is whatever category, the things we focus on sort of work in that sector doesn't really matter. So, but, but I am interested in talking about how, how you have maybe built up to going from one area to the other. Cause my understanding is that, you know, you spent so many years working in residential and then it was quite a, quite a gradual transition into schools, for example. So do you want to maybe just talk through that a little bit in terms of, um, I guess, in terms of like that transition from working with one type of client to a quite different type of client? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of practices, you start off in residential, regardless of your interest or desire, as it happens, we love doing it and we will continue doing that ideally right through our careers as a bit of a cornerstone of what we do because we think it brings us into contact with, uh, in, a, in a really intimate way, the end user. Um, and if we're thinking about human comforts, you really get such a detailed little case study into what that means when you're working with, you know, the very few end people who are going to use that, that building. So that's where that interest will always remain. But as a practice, interested in people and human comforts, social comforts, psychological comforts. We really see the potential for much more impact in other areas. So if we think about schools and kind of the, the rich social environments that they are and the kind of impact you can have on the way students work together in solitude, engage with teachers, the way a school relates to its community, it's a really kind of that's really fertile territory. Or as we've been talking about more recently, um, moving into social housing and thinking about the impact that you can have there um, socially, socioeconomically. Um, these, are, these are areas where, which, are, which are much more rich for the exploration of, um, of the ideas that we're, in, that we're interested in. But we really wanted to ensure that when we make those transitions from one project type into the next, that we were doing so in a way uh, that we felt we were able to deliver a high a high quality outcome um, every time. And so 
what that meant for us was really establishing the practice um, and all of its systems and processes around the residential work, really feeling like we can nail that, get really mm. good at that. And then only then and only then did we start talking about what it might mean to move into um, the education work. And we started kind of laying down the foundations to to be able to move into that in the in the many ways that that we needed to. And the, and the plan here really is to become very good at that in the way that we feel, you know, very comfortable doing residential work. Um, and then once we're in a position where that feels really solid, then start thinking about the social housing. So I suppose there's a real quality control thing in that. Um, and there's a, a there's a taking pride in, yeah, in, in the quality of work that we're, we're putting out there and not just rushing into all sectors at once and kind of doing them half-assed. Yeah, I, like I think I think when Mike's when Mike says we, it's not just it's Mike, it's not just Mike and I. It's also our, our team. So we want we want the team to kind of have the the autonomy to run projects, to know what they need to do to to deliver their projects, what their role what their role is within that kind of delivery of projects. So. <laughs> Otherwise, everyone's frazzled. So, you know, you've got nine people uh, not knowing what they're doing when they're doing it. So um, we want to, you know, we developed a lot of systems, which Mike, Mike touched on, which sounds very kind of bland. But those systems were, were to allow us to kind of focus on the, on the work at hand and, and to know what, what anyone needs to do at, at any point. Mm. I'm dying to know more about these systems and processes. It'll probably like bore half the listeners for me to just be asking you guys about like let's talk um let's talk gantt charts guys but um but i'm reading a book at the moment about a fine dining restaurant in new york uh called 11 madison park i think but it's a book about the people that found that founded that and ran that but they were talking about their process for like you know developing their systems and processes about like how do you put down a wine glass and like how do you like pour sauces and all this sort of stuff but they'd have to have these like they would be perfecting those things but have to have these like half hour meetings every day before service where they would go through any new element that had been decided with the team to make sure everybody understood like here's how we do that one new thing that we're working on today. Do you guys do something or anything similar in terms of like how do you, when you're really trying to create a lot of structure around those processes and systems, like how do you guys convey that through the team or work on that together and make sure everybody's up to speed on that? So I think in the early days, I'll, I'll um, give Mike the credit. He set up a lot of those <laughs> pro formers whilst he was still, I think, even working for someone else. So they were like after hours, uh, that was after hours work. So even from the time we officially, before we even officially established architecture, architecture, um, Mike in particular was kind of working through that. Those documents have, a, most of them are still around in some format. They will have evolved and then others will have been added. I think the, the team, like you alluded to, the team's not that big and like our projects, I guess, we've had slow growth in staff numbers over the years for probably much the same reasons really as as we've already talked about that you know once we had our our first employee we needed to you know figure out how to be a good employer so you don't want to do that to test that on too many people i think (laughs) Um, (laughs) and um yeah so it was kind of a slow growth even you know in terms of hiring along the way um and working with not not just between ourselves but but with with the staff as well on 
where those performance, not even performance, like just those systems need to evolve as we go. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a couple within the practice that have, you know, just have that kind of headspace for that too. So it's not necessarily all driven by by the two of us either. The, the, the cornerstone of, of our operation is really the timesheet. Um, as uh, strange as that sounds, it's where we gather all of the data that we need on how much time we're spending on projects in various phases, how much we should be invoicing. But really importantly, it's where, it's what we use to project like how we're looking into the future. Should we be hiring? Should we be taking on more work? What kind of work? How many jobs? And the data that we kind of pull together also shows us which areas we need to improve in. So we can see, oh, we're always losing money on this phase. Um, does that mean we increase our fee? Does it mean we need to become more efficient? Um, and you know, there are different ways of thinking about that data and what you do with it. But there've been some really key moments where we've used that data to, um, to then think about how we do our service differently. Um, and there was one key moment where we weren't being particularly efficient with our documentation. We were losing money every time we were documenting a building. And so we sat down and developed a really, a much more detailed proforma around the processes um, and various gateways through the documentation process. This is where you've just lost all your listeners. I'm sorry, Dave. Oh, no. um, I hope not because uh, this is gold. Uh, this is the part I'm like listening to. Yeah, go for it. And we were worried at that point, or there was a, certainly a discussion Nick and I had about, you know, are we, is this micromanaging um, by, by spelling it out in this kind of detail? And our project architects at that point had only really been with us for, you know, uh, we kind of we we did a hire a few few project architects all at once about seven years ago. They're all still with us today, which is amazing and lovely. Um, but we um, yeah we were worried that we're maybe telling them how to suck eggs, um, and that might be an, irrit an irritation. But like everything, Nick and I often talk th um, through the lens of experiment. This is an experiment. Let's just try it on and see see how it goes. Um, and what actually happened was that by putting these systems in place, we totally liberated um, our staff from their dependence on us. Uh, the expectations were really clear. Um, it was really easy to see what had to happen next. And in a way, their autonomy really escalated. And that's where we really found that our staff came into their own and felt very confident in the work that they were doing and became much less reliant upon us and seemed to really begin enjoying their work a whole lot more too. And I think all of that really is the foundation of the kind of incredible staff we have today who are, you know, really autonomous, independent, capable, um, and, you know, driven architects who, who really kind of take, take the ownership of their work. Um, and, yeah, all of that comes down to the timesheet. So interesting. I think what's cool about this is that, you know, um, I think what architecture, architecture, what you guys look like from the outside would give you a particular impression about like what gets you guys fired up because I think such a, such a successful aesthetic, I think, you know, that you've developed through photography, through your work, through your branding, all that sort of stuff. 
And um, I think, you know, before I met you guys, I probably expected your kind of certain things to be your forte and Excel was probably not one of them. Um, and so it's so interesting. And I think bring, I love kind of this stuff coming up on the podcast because it's always about, you know, what is creating the conditions for that awesome work to take place. And here we find out it's project management and the timesheet. Who knew? <laughs> but it gets me. I love it. <laughs> well, I, I want to know more. <laughs> it's. I mean, when we started setting that stuff up in the early days, there was kind of nervousness around, oh, God, is this what running a practice is? Is it? Is it just all of this system stuff? You know, you've put all that thought in at the start so that it can kind of then just sit in the background, um, set up well, so it's doing what it needs to do, and that just frees up all the time so that we can focus on design, so that we can focus on working with our clients. We can focus on doing the stuff that, w- that does really excite us, that does really drive us. Um, but in a funny way, because that stuff is so instrumental um, in setting us on the right path, we do also end up getting excited about getting that stuff right, or we're driven probably more to the point to get that stuff right um, because it, it, it just makes everything else so much better. Mm, interesting. I'm interested in the process. I touched on it briefly earlier, but I'd love to come back to it when you were talking about kind of like gearing up to sort of make the move into schools, for example, from residential. And what what are some of those other kind of um, steps that you've that have taken place for you as you've developed your kind of expertise and confidence to move into a new a new sort of space that you haven't really worked in before to do it to do it properly? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we hadn't really reflected on this much until you know, we had our little informal chat last week. It's always the informal pre-chat that gets them. It's always the good stuff comes up. Yeah, and it made us realise kind of how much we had done in preparation <laughs> uh, for, for for getting into the education work. Um, but, I mean, there's kind of some – there are some key ingredients around, um, you know, meeting with the right people you know, within the government departments that, that you want, that you're interested in working in. Um, there's, uh, you know, building your folio and messaging around that work that you're hoping to do. There's starting to look out into the industry to see who's doing good work. And then really a key part of it for us was um, teaching. So, you know, Nick and I have both done a bit of teaching up at Melbourne Uni and you know we're running a design studio um, looking at the design of education buildings using that as an opportunity both to explore the ideas um, but also to connect with um, other members of the you know architecture industry who are already doing great work in this space to hear from them to see what they were doing um, and in a way um, you know informally building relationships with these people who then in some ways, you know, became support networks as well um, in terms of getting into the, in terms of getting into the area. So, yeah, there was, there's, I suppose once, once you started, once you start setting your focus on, on entering that, that new area, you, the opportunities start presenting themselves. Yeah. And I think there's such great support within the architecture community. It has a very collegiate nature and there's so many people you can kind of talk to, um, you know, have a lunch with. They'll take you through their work. They'll take you through the challenges that they may have had. They'll, you know, they can, you know, people are happy to prepare, help prepare you for, you know, dabbling in it too. And and likewise, we would we would and have returned that um, even, you know, following our experience, say in the school 
school sector recently. Fortunately, there's been a lot of particularly government schoolwork over the last five or six years, so it's there's a lot to go around. So that the, the you know the authority itself is is looking for lots of architects. So yeah, it's, it's just it is a great place to kind of practice architecture in that sense. Yeah, it feels like if there's a field if, if there's a field you want to move into, there'll be people out there who'll be willing to spend the time to um, talk you through how to get there. I'm just wondering about getting into work, uh, working with government, and it's a topic that we talk about a lot on the podcast because, um, at, you know, at Australian Small Practice Podcast, we spend a lot of our time on residential, right? Like that's just kind of kind of how it tends to go. But when we do have an opportunity to talk about education and social affordable housing and things like that, I'm always interested just in terms of like, I mean, one thought that kind of pops to mind is that, you know, did, did you guys find that there was a big, was there a big adjustment in terms of like that the, the fees as I guess a constraint around how much time you could spend on the different stages and things like that? Like when you guys, I, I'm asking you this question because you guys are the timesheet guys. So I know that if anyone's analyzing this and going, hang on a second, like we can't do this or we can't do that or, or actually there's more time, if you really if you really plan it out and you really kind of like get into the nitty-gritty, you can actually do quite a lot of good design time within the constraints of like a public project or whatever. I'd just love to get your take on it just in terms of I know you've seen the numbers. So what's your sort of philosophy around government projects where maybe the fees are a little bit more precise or hard-nosed in terms of what you can really do there? Like what's what? How does it work? Uh, it, it works in the same way that you know you've got a, you've got a fee and you, you divide that by your hourly rate and and they're the hours you've got to spend and yeah you know you spend more hours simple and, as that spend simple more as hours and, 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 you, and you go broke. Um, you know, tr- truth be told, if if every school project went like our first one, we'd be struggling. Um, but there was a lot to learn, so you. It's a project, but you almost put it in your, you know, your overhead columns. And it's just like R and D, right? Like it's it's a bit like R and D. So it's it's learning. So you you learn as you go. You 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 do your first project. You deliver it. You learn all the new things that come into you know into play whilst working for government and. And you adapt on the next one um, and you, you change a couple of things. You know, we've got a whole new set of systems to, to run our educational work now. And whilst whilst our first project was, you know, financially not how you'd want to run, out, run a project, our most recent one went very well. So you learn as you go and you, you adapt as you go. They're, I don't feel like we've ever compromised on our um design integrity or our design process through that that is still like our number one driver in our work that we do and i I don't think we'll ever compromise that but through the nature of what the government requires in delivering those educational projects you do need to be a bit more careful about about what you do and what you design and how you design say so you know potentially not doing the experimental or potentially experimental type details that you're doing in residential, you you can't really do that so much in educational. So we just learn to design um, within the parameters of of what's required to deliver, say, government schoolwork. I think I think designing those school projects, the time the timelines are so tight. It's a little bit like our early residential work, where the projects are small and the fees are small, where you had to come to a good idea quickly 
commit to that idea and make the most of it. There's particularly in the early days of a practice, there isn't much room in terms of the sustainability of the business to be designing and redesigning over and over like you might have at university. Um, you need to tune your instincts to, to, to where the good ideas are and really get behind them. And the school work is a little bit like that as well. You know, Nick's right, like we're, we haven't compromised on the, on the design quality in that work. We've been really driven to ensure that's the case. But we've also had to think quickly and get, get behind those ideas quickly. Um, and, and you kind of have to. There's no time to be doubling back and there's no fee to be doubling back. Yeah, okay. So that's the thing that sort of stood out to you as like one of the big takeaways. Yeah, that makes sense. It's obviously something that is a big topic uh, in the news, in the conversation at the moment in politics. Like housing is is a really, really important topic at the moment. And um, there is a sense, I think, that more money is going to move, more government focus and, and resources are going to move into that sector and I, I sort of when i'm reading news about that i'm kind of curious in terms of how architects that are interested in that area might be kind of engaging with that and and participating in that and like has it hit the ground yet is there a sense that like it's really happening or is it still like we're all kind of sitting there anticipating something's going to happen in that space and we're just kind of like getting our head right to kind of work in that area or getting our ducks in a row like where are you guys kind of at with it or what do you sort of think's going on at the moment I mean, we're in the very kind of early stages of, of you know, getting to know what's going on, and kind of connecting with that with that sector a little bit more. Mm. But I mean, there's been great work that's been going on in community and social housing, you know, over over the last few years. There's been some good stuff happening. Yeah. I guess just one last topic, just in terms of um, a way to kind of finish things off today. We've touched on like so many kind of different areas, but I wonder, like. In terms of the things we've spoken about, is there any anything else that sort of sprung to mind for you guys in terms of how this stuff maybe all kind of connects together? In terms of, can you put my conclusion together for me, guys? <laughs> Just in terms of, like, what what do you feel like is the takeaway when we talk about this stuff? Like, or the or the kind of the big reminder for you guys, given that you've had the experience of kind of seeing the business go in the direction it has over over those all those years i mean what what do you sort of feel like um stands out for you from this chat we've had like i think it sounds so boring but like we have taken a slow and steady approach to what we've done and i think fundamentally that's because we're we're so interested in delivering a high quality um type of work that um, we, for us, we felt that is the way to do it and, you know, deliver on that and meet all our clients' needs and deliver on our own kind of high expectations of what we, what we will do. So I think a lot of the principles we apply to, to the many different kind of realms that we need to operate a business in, whether that's, um, you know, looking after staff, uh, looking after residential clients, looking after you know, schools, taking taking care of schools, um, promoting ourselves. I think, you know, we have been pretty targeted and pretty careful about how we've, we've done things along the way. A lot of that is also based on um, both Mark and I just so interested in, in ourselves and our staff having a work-life balance that is reasonable and makes sense. So, yeah. Um, you know, overtime's a dirty word in our practice, 
and uh, you know nine nine to six is perfect if everyone you know does an eight hour day and then and goes home and and does their own thing too like you know we believe everyone can work better everyone will be more engaged if they're also rested and have their time off and time away from architecture to to you know have your own personal pursuits whatever that is whether it's hobbies or family um anything like that too so it's yeah i think it circles back to to the work life balance as well across that kind of you know slow and steady or methodical kind of process yeah like the marathon rather than the sprint right like you're absolutely you're doing all things in this kind of like slow sort of sustainable way and um you know going we'll get there in the end like you know i think sometimes you get that anxiety of like oh we got to make shit happen right now you know like stuff has to happen right now because we're nervous mm. if we don't then mm. you know mm. what will happen but but you guys have just kind of got that confidence of just going look it's going to be okay <laughs> we're going to be all right we're going to get there in the end so let's just like kind of like go there in a kind of let's be a little bit more conservative and do things carefully and and that's kind of a good way to go you end up enjoying yourself more and also like that final product that you're delivering is like at that better level of quality and fewer mistakes and issues, which it makes a lot of sense. Um, Mike, do you have any kind of uh, any concluders as well? I love it I when you guys do my conclusions. This is going to uh, become a regular segment. Go for it. I think also just that like that it's just all about people for us. Um, and to bring it back to kind of the team thing that, that Nick started talking about, in starting a business, an architecture practice, Nick and I, I think we probably both assumed that the the main thing we'd be doing is you know designing you know beautiful buildings for people and that remains extremely important to us what i don't think we really uh expected was or really spent too much time thinking about was that another really big thing we're going to be doing is kind of like starting a family you know like a, a family of 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 colleagues who um who we're responsible for and if our objective is to be making the world, you know, a, a more comfortable place for people to exist within, then the workplace is kind of the beginning of that. And the biggest impact we really have on any given individuals are probably the people that we work with. And so creating an office which feels, you know, you know safe and comfortable, but also engaged and lively and full of possibility is really what drives Nick and I on a day-to-day -day basis. And it really feels like good work can then spring from that. So, you know, we look after the people we're working with, we look after ourselves, make sure that we're rested and that we're inspired and that we're getting out in the world and, you know, being refueled by the other things that are out there, um, that we're not just churning, you know, seven days a week, so that when we come back to our desks on a Monday morning, we're excited so that when we meet those clients and speak to them about what they want from us, we're excited to find out about who they are and to, and to make something out of that. It all really just comes down to, you know, just looking after ourselves <laughs> properly. Love it. I'm going to have a, such a hard time trying to top your conclusions. Like, God, you guys are really... <laughs> put the pressure on me there but um i'll try my best uh, we've we've got to finish up there guys thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just like giving giving us the kind of the behind the scenes look at, at kind of what you're thinking about and, and what you've been working on i really appreciate it so thank you so much guys no worries thanks for having us thanks for having us dave 
That was my conversation with Nick James and Michael Roper from Architecture Architecture. If you'd like to learn more about Architecture Architecture, you can visit architecturearchitecture.com.au or follow them on Instagram at architecture underscore architecture. This episode of the podcast was sponsored by Office Dave Sharp, a practice providing specialized marketing consultancy and strategy tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or email info at officedavesharp.com if you'd like to get in touch to discuss your practice. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. 